Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. It's so lovely to have you. I went when Kylie said, oh, we've got, we've got more than 50. I'm like, more teachers. Bring all the teachers in. Have all the teachers. Because, of course, that's what we want to do. We want to really encourage you to come bring your students if you can. But if you can't, of course, bring the exhibition back to them in the classroom as well. So it is really lovely to have you all here. It's so exciting. So as Lisa said, it's been my great pleasure to curate this exhibition, uh, to bring it here to Adelaide, to be able to share it um, with this wonderful audience here. Of course, we are the only venue for this exhibition. And at the end of this exhibition, it will be packed up and head back to Mexico. And for the time being, it doesn't look like it will be touring anytime soon. So we are very, very privileged to have this incredible collection here. I'm going to give you a little bit of background about the exhibition, about the content. Uh, we'll, we'll wander a little bit, but it, it gets a bit tighter as we head through. Uh, but, you know, I will stay in the space as you walk around as well. So pop up and ask me a question or two or whatever you'd like. Of course, there's, there's a lot of text on the walls that you can read. There's a beautiful catalogue that I've produced, which is very much particular to the exhibition and I've tried to aim it at a, a kind of general audience to make it really accessible for people. So, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, but this is really about making an experience specific to our audiences here in Australia and, and interpreting it in a way that we can really connect with it too. And I think there's some really great relevance that we can talk about as we go through. I'm sorry that you have to hear two versions of me. There's an intro video just out there, which is about four and a half minutes long. Uh, which is to help people really kind of set the scene for the exhibition before they come in. As Lisa said, every man and his dog, well, no dogs, unfortunately, wish we had dogs, uh, is coming to see this exhibition. So offering guided tours is a little bit tricky. So we've produced this intro video just to help kind of give people a moment, a bit of insight and feel that they're getting that special experience as well with the exhibition. So Frida and Diego Love and Revolution comes from the Jacques and Natasha Gelman collection. Now, you won't know Jacques and Natasha Gelman, but they were European emigres who separately arrived into Mexico City in the late 1930s. They left Europe, uh, fleeing, of course, the rise of fascism and national socialism, uh, and ended up in Mexico. They fell in love with Mexico and with each other. They were married in 1940. I've already pressed record. <laughs> they were married in 1940 and the following year became Mexican citizens. And really from that moment that they were married, they began collecting art. And it was a joint passion. They collected together and every single work they collected was a collaboration. It wasn't that one was a, a leader in the acquisition of works, but they discussed every single acquisition. And they had two main sections to their collecting. They collected Mexican modernism, which you'll see in this exhibition. They also had a very strong collection of French School of Paris works. The School of Paris works were actually donated to or bequeathed to the Metropolitan Museum in New York in 1998 upon Natasha Gelman's death. And there is a Gelman gallery in the Met that you can go and see. And at the time, that French collection was described as being one of the singular most significant bequests to the Metropolitan, while the Mexican collection was sort of considered ancillary or lesser. And so I think this really helps to set the scene for us to understand the way the world has changed in the last few decades. 
we were certainly still looking to Europe for artistic inspiration even in the 90s. Uh, but now, of course, we are much more open in understanding that artistic inspiration comes from all around the world. So this collection of Mexican modernism has really increased in its significance exponentially in that time and is one of the single... There are two really significant collections of works by these artists. This one, the Jacques and Natasha Gelman collection, which has been touring for uh, more than 20 years, and the Dolores Olmedo collection, which is based in Mexico City and is actually close to the public at the moment. They are the two key collections and they're both private collections. So that's a really interesting thing to think about. So my job as a curator is to interpret this collection for our audiences. When we're presented with it, uh, it is a touring exhibition, so we're presented with a list of works and a sort of quite a general uh, blurb or background on it. So it was called Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera and Mexican Modernism. Now, we didn't feel that was quite the right fit for our audiences. Australians don't know very much about Mexican modernism, let alone Mexican art at all. So I really wanted to situate it in a kind of more contemporary mode. So Frida and Diego, love and revolution. And that really sets this kind of scene that we're in here in this first room of the, of the exhibition. Because I wanted to bring some of those socio-political stories to the fore in this exhibition. So here, in this part, we set the scene with a background to the Mexican Revolution. As I mentioned, Australians don't have much access to Mexican art. Really, the only art you'll ever see in, Mex in Australian collections that's Mexican is Mesoamerican or pre-Columbian artefacts. And they are now, as we all know, quite problematic in terms of their provenance, how they've come to be in collections and how they were actually acquired. So you won't see very much on display. So this is an opportunity not just to meet the works of artists you know really well, but to have a chance to, to meet new artists, to see their work and be exposed to different parts of this incredible artistic milieu of that period. So here we set the scene with the Mexican Revolution of 1910. Now I think, you know, obviously I'm assuming you're teachers that don't just teach art but other things as well. And there's a lot of really important history to be taught here, social history, political history. So of course this is, this is a country not unlike our own, that has experienced significant change over time. It is a history of great indigenous empires, of the Olmeca, of the Aztec, of the Mayan empires, but it also is a country of colonisation, just like our own, with the invasion of the Spanish in the late 16th century, the destruction of indigenous cultures, the raising of um, historical monuments and buildings, and the building of this new... European version of Mexico called New Spain. So there's some really strong resonance with our own history here in Australia. And this moment of the 1910 revolution is a moment, and it's not just one moment, it's really 10 years of, of fighting and change, but it's, it's, a, it's a really important time in Mexico's history because what we see is a move away from the colonial history, from looking to Europe for inspiration, to a, a, a return to Indigenous histories, a looking inward and taking inspiration from the long and proud history of Mexico's Indigenous people. So in this room, we have this beautiful moving image which I've added to the exhibition, which is Mexico City in 1925. And this is really to give you a sense of what Mexico City looked like. 
Now, this is, of course, when Mexico City had a population of less than a million. Of course, it's now a super city. 22 million people live in Mexico City alone. Uh, but this gives you a sense of just how European the city looks. It could be anywhere in Europe. I mean, it could be Spain, of course. Uh, so it gives you a sense of the world that these artists, like Diego Rivera, Frida Kahlo, these wonderful artists are emerging into. They're not actually seeing their own indigenous histories in their capital city. On my right here, we have a selection of beautiful images by Guillermo Carlo, Frida Carlo's father. And Frida Carlo's father, of course, was built, born Wilhelm Carlo, German born. And I think you'll notice as you walk around the exhibition, you'll see that there are a lot of, uh, if you if you're like me and you look at artwork labels, you're interested to see that a lot of the photographers and artists were actually born elsewhere. So there's this huge movement of migration into Mexico in the late 30s and 40s. And we see this kind of mass immigration and how that changes the artistic landscape of the country. Of course, uh, Guillermo Carlo came much earlier. He came in the late 19th century. He actually suffered from epilepsy. His father gave him money to move to Mexico and establish a photography studio. And he became a photographer for sort of the wealthy elite of Mexico, um, but was also commissioned to take these beautiful photographs of historical buildings in Mexico, primarily uh, buildings associated with the Catholic Church. And of course, the church has a really important role to play in this history as well, just as it does in Australia. While, of course, in um, Mexico, it's predominantly Catholic. Here we have a mixture of different um, Christian faiths. So it's really interesting to sort of see, again, those synergies. On the other side, on my left, we have a selection of images by Diego Rivera. And these are hand-coloured aquatints. And these images are actually taken from some of Rivera's most famous murals. And we'll talk about the mural movement shortly. But these, again, are to, to give you a sort of a sense of how art is used to affect real and important social change. So this room is really about setting the scene. And as you go through, we'll talk a little bit about the exhibition design as well, just to give you a sense of how that is used to help interpret the the works on display. Of course, we have a very kind of nationalistic approach here. We have the colours of the Mexican flag, which are still very much part of uh, Mexican independence as well. So we're going to head through into the next room. You are getting a slightly unusual view because I think Lisa mentioned to you before, we do have the house lights on, so it's a little bit brighter than it would be normally and a bit weird, so the lighting's not quite right. So you normally wouldn't have that hot spot right at the top of that wall, for example, but that's just to help with cleaning. Of course, we're open every day except Christmas Day, so cleaning has to happen before we open in the morning each day. So uh, you will see cleaners wandering around and the glamorous life of working in a gallery. Uh, that's what we do. That's the only time we've got, so lucky we're not having having the vacuuming done at the same time. I have had to give talks while we've been doing that. So we've moved on from the Mexican Revolution and we come into this kind of new flourishing of Mexican art. So this room, and I should say, I've divided the exhibition up into eight different themes. And again, that's part of my way of, of trying to create a narrative that people can really understand and break down in a way that's really manageable. And also create interesting stories that you can wander through as you go around the exhibition. So in this room, which is of course inspired by the incredible architect, Mexican architect, Luis Barragan, uh, 
with the beautiful use of purple and pink, very much part of Barigan's work, his aesthetic, and the wonderful use of angular forms as well. Here we have two themes that were introduced. We have Mexicanidad or Mexicanismo and Art Popular, and also the new ways of seeing with the emergence of photography. So Mexicanidad is this moment where we see artists turn inwards into looking back at the wonderful long traditions of indigenous art and folk art. So here you walked past a glorious painting by Diego Rivera as you came in, uh, the Calla Lily Vendor, which of course is one of Rivera's very well-known images. Uh, and I would encourage you to have a close look at that. Not too close, because obviously we don't want you touching anything. But have a close look at it, because if you're interested, of course, in the, in the way that an artist works on, the, on his, in different media, that's a really interesting work, because it shows that Diego Rivera really um, kind of brought his muralist style into his uh, regular paintings as well. It's a very, very flat painting. It's painted on board and it's likely that he sanded the layers of paint as he went through to create a really, really flat image. So it's well worth having a look and quite an interesting image. Of course, what we see with this rise of art popular or folk art is elevation of Indigenous peoples to a new level. We see the Indigenous peoples being used as a site for artistic endeavour. So, of course, in the Calla Lily Vendor, we have two young Indigenous women who are preparing the basket of calla lilies for sale at the market. It's a humble subject, but it, is, it has become a subject that's worthy of artistic interpretation. Just as we see here with another beautiful Diego Rivera, the sunflowers with the children, slightly uncanny with the, of course, the dolls with the amputated leg and the masks, but of course bringing in those icons of folk art into his everyday practice. And in this section you meet your first painting by Frida Kahlo, which is just behind you there on the wall which is the fabulous work, The Love Embrace the Universe, an incredible painting that brings in a lot of those ideas. So we see the melding of ancient Aztec culture with uh, kind of contemporary interpretations, the, the notion of magic realism, of course, which we see in Frida Kahlo's work. Uh, some might call it surrealist, but of course, Frida Kahlo herself eschewed being considered a surrealist, but it's an incredible work. It actually features three embraces. Of course, you have the large embrace of the universe, which features that wonderful Aztec god. And then we have the embrace of the earth, and you can see the cracked earth on the breast of uh, Mexico. And then we have the third embrace, which is Frida Kahlo herself embracing uh, Diego Rivera, who is both child and wise. He has the eye, the third eye of wisdom. Here we go. The lights are going down to exhibition lights now. The third eye of wisdom. And of course, he's holding the fire of wisdom as well. So you have wonderful symbolism in here and those fabulous uh, indigenous Mexican plants, which Frida Kahlo proudly displays across her painting. And of course, I think you can really connect that to our own um, history of colonisation, uh, destruction of Indigenous cultures and resilience and rising up and flourishing of Indigenous artistic practice in Australia. And I think there's some really nice storytelling that can go along with that as well.
You'll also meet some incredible artists in here that you won't know, that you won't have come across before because their work is just not simply seen in Australian collections. Gunter Gerzos over here, two beautiful works by him. Um, so I should mention that Jacques Gelman was actually a film producer and that's how he ended up in Mexico. And Gunter Gerzos actually started working for Gelman as a set painter in his films. But then he was able to support himself as an artist in his own right. And when um, Jacques and Natasha died and the collection was bequeathed to uh, Robert Littman, there were 38 paintings by Gunter Gerzos in the collection. So a very substantial part of the collection. We also have works by Juan Soriano, Miguel Covarrubias, uh, and lots of really incredible artists that you won't know. Only one other female artist in here, Maria Izquierdo. Uh, Maria Izquierdo is arguably the most famous female artist in Mexico in the modernist period. Much more famous than Frida Kahlo, but of course Frida Kahlo has, without a doubt, outshone every other Mexican artist in that time. And that's a really interesting thing that you can certainly talk about with your students. Why is it that Frida Kahlo's star shines so brightly? And what is it about her and her work that speaks to us so strongly? So we'll we won't walk together into the next section because there's too many of you, but we will. I will talk a little bit about the muralist movement because it's a really important part of this story. Uh, the Mexican mural movement is something that probably we don't know a lot about in Australia, but it's a really important part of this story because it's a state-driven, a government-driven policy to affect social and cultural change. The education minister uh, in Mexico in the early 1920s, Jose Vasconcelos, actually sought out artists, gave them walls across the city of Mexico, paid them to create works of art. Those works of art were to represent the history of Mexico. No more, no less. They were essentially to be teaching tools. So this was a way of using art to teach people. And essentially, this was also a way of giving back culture to Mexico's indigenous peoples because they had had no access to education. They were not able to read or write. And so for Vasconcelos, this became a tool for teaching, educating and elevating the First Nations people of Mexico. So Vasconcelos brought Diego Rivera back from Paris. He'd been in Paris for more than a decade. Brought him back via Italy. He learnt the techniques of the great fresco painters in Italy. Came back to Mexico and became one of the three great muralists in Mexico City. So if you go to Mexico today, you can see incredible murals by Diego Rivera. I've actually included some reproductions of two of his Detroit industry murals and a fabulous mural that's in the Sunday afternoon in the Alameda Park in Mexico City just to give people a sense of the kind of scale of them. And in fact, they're actually smaller than they are in reality, but also that beautiful luminosity of Diego Rivera's mural works. And of course, you who are art teachers know about how frescoes are made with, you know, of course, a wet plaster with a wet paint on top. So very laborious, you can only work in a small area at any sort of time. And if you make a mistake, it's very difficult to rectify. So it's, it's an old technique, but it creates it's an incredible translucent luminous paint as we know from seeing the Sistine Chapel or Giotto's masterpiece in Padova. 
And interestingly enough, of course, part of our is kind of considered the moment where Giotto changes, where Renaissance art begins. And this exhibition's previous venue was actually part of a... Anyway, one of those weird kind of synergies that is quite fascinating when you think about the history of muralism and Diego Rivera. So here, in what we might do is... Um, I think skip down to the textiles room and have a little walk down into there. But I would encourage you to come back. I haven't really even spoken about these fabulous photographs. And if those of you who are interested in the history of photography, uh, this is really about the rise in photography from the 1930s and that new wave of photography that we see, the influence of international modernism coming into photography, where you see this kind of move away from pictorialism, you know, that very painterly aesthetic of the late 19th, early 20th century into this new sort of harder modernist aesthetic where you take a very humble subject and elevate it to a new level. Think of these beautiful um, Manuel Alvarez Bravo works here where we have the spanner down in the bottom right corner, which is really just a humble tool, but here it is an incredible discussion of light and shade, the composition, the formalism, all of those elements that we see are so great in that development of photography. And of course, the top image here, a beautiful landscape, but in fact, it's actually just a rolled mattress and we see the mattress ticking that makes it look like a fabulous undulating landscape. So it's really about how, you know, the artistic eye can reinterpret these forms we're so familiar with. So what we're going to do is we're going to head straight down the centre of uh, the exhibition. Uh, you will be drawn to Frida Kahlo's self-portrait with monkeys. I'm going to talk to you in the room with the dresses. We, we just skipped the whole middle bit of the exhibition, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but you would have met uh, Jacques and Natasha Gelman. There's five portraits of Natasha Gelman in this exhibition. And I think there's a really interesting story to tell about the importance of portraiture and also the importance of patronage. Of course, uh, commissioning portraits is a really important way for patrons to support artists and you'll see the, the, the most beautiful work by Diego Rivera, the portrait of Natasha Gelman, so glamorous. She looks like a Hollywood movie star. Uh, that's actually the first painting that the Gelmans commissioned. So it's a really lovely starting point. I mean, why not go big when you start? So it's a, you know, it's part of that storytelling around why do people commission portraits and of course things like the Archibald Prize is a really important part of that story and I'm sure some of you came last year for our uh, was that last year? Uh, oh my god. It feels like 10 years ago. It does, it does. Like, I think that was last year. And of course, that storytelling is, is very much part of that. But it's also really interesting to see the way that artists interpret uh, a figure differently. And of course, you've got Diego Rivera's painting of Natasha Gelman, but you've also got Frida Kahlo's beautiful painting of Natasha Gelman too, which is a very small, it's a very intimate portrait. And I think you can also talk about the relationship between Frida and Natasha. Uh, they were close friends and in fact Natasha really helped Frida Kahlo a lot because of course Frida Kahlo wasn't famous in her lifetime. She was known uh, as the, the wife of Diego Rivera and in fact I've had about four people send me this article that's come up on Instagram in the last few days about uh, with a picture of Frida Kahlo painting the self-portrait that you can see in the next room uh, saying the wife of Diego Rivera dabbles in paint and you think well this is this is what we're looking at at the time. This is the Frida Kahlo of this period. Of course, today, that's not the Frida Kahlo we know, but it's also really important to put her work in context and put her life in context 
and also draw out some of those stories as we go through and we'll talk about that a little bit more in this section. So you've also had a chance, if you if you wandered through the mural section, to see Diego Rivera painting the Detroit industry murals on that um, historic footage, which is incredible. And then, of course, the room behind you there is um, really two parts of the story, the love story between Frida and Diego, but also the wonderful role of the Casa Azul, the Blue House, plays in this storytelling. And the, I guess the world that Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera surrounded themselves with. You know, the story of Frida Kahlo is so important and kind of you know, inseparable from uh, the story of her art. She's a woman who, as, as a child, suffered from polio. Um, she had one leg that was weaker than the other. Uh, then, of course, she was in a tragic uh, crash when she was 18. She had wanted to be a doctor, but the bus crash when she was 18, of course, changed the course of her life. Uh, her spine was broken in three places and her pelvis and foot were crushed. Uh, and later on in life, she actually had her foot amputated. But, of course, she underwent more than 30 operations throughout her life, um, always seeking to uh, stop the pain in her back particularly. So this is a woman who's in constant pain. So I think there's a lot of discussion around art as therapy as well, and we know how important art as therapy can be, the fact that you know hospitals certainly use it, but also art as a way of expressing herself. So she went from being someone who was going to be a doctor to someone who became a painter. To think this one moment in her life changed her life, but also all of ours, because we wouldn't know Frida Kahlo the doctor, but we know Frida Kahlo, the incredible painter. And yes, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the story of Frida Kahlo, but if her paintings weren't incredible, we wouldn't be here because her work speaks to us in a way that images of her wouldn't. So her work is very, very profoundly um, important in our lives. And I think all of that is connected to this notion of identity. And these three rooms in the exhibition really unpack that storytelling, talk to us about the way that Frida Kahlo created this incredible identity through her work, but also through her physical body, using her own body as a site for social and political statement. This is a woman who suffered from disability throughout her adult life. This is a woman who was openly bisexual. And this is a woman who was also of Indigenous heritage. So this is, this is a really interesting story to think about. These um, beautiful garments here are not dresses worn by Frida Kahlo. Predominantly, they are historic garments that are from the period of Frida Kahlo, made um, by the women of the Tijuana region, so their traditional Tijuana costume. Two of them are actually recreated in Frida Kahlo's style, the blue satin skirt at the front and the black silk in the middle. They are not traditional costume, but Frida Kahlo was a great seamstress and made a lot of her own clothes as well. So what we have here is we have a sense of a woman asserting her identity. She adopted this clothing every day and wore it every day of her life. And this was at a time when the majority of people in Mexico City wore everyday European-style clothing. There was a small group of sort of intellectual and artistic elites who adopted traditional clothing. And Frida Kahlo was undoubtedly the most celebrated. So you can imagine the statement that she would have made walking down the streets of Mexico City wearing this incredible clothing, beautiful, gorgeous, brightly coloured clothing. 
But not only that, when she and Diego went to North America, they travelled to San Francisco, Detroit, New York, she wore all this clothes. So you can imagine the statement that she made as an Indigenous Mexican woman walking down the streets of New York City. So this is really about her using her body as a really bold political and social statement. This is asserting her Indigenous heritage and taking pride in it. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. A lot of people have said to me, well, why did she really exaggerate her monobrow? She wasn't, you know, she, she made it look worse. She made herself look ugly. And I always say to them, is that, no, she's not trying to make herself look ugly. She's challenging our notion of what Western beauty is because she's actually exaggerating her Indigenous heritage. She is highlighting those things that actually denote her as Mexican, her Indigenous Oaxaca heritage. So what she's saying is, I'm beautiful, but I don't necessarily conform to your notions of beauty. And I think, again, that's one of the reasons she is so appealing, particularly to young women, we know that her work has such a strong resonance to young women and I think that's one of the reasons that her work does speak to them. Her work is so profoundly intimate in a way that Diego Rivera's work is is very grand social political statement. Frida Kahlo's work is a very in individual social and political statement and also... Uh, I guess, highlighting the fact that women's work, women's bodies can also be sites of engagement. So I think it's a really interesting discussion to talk about. So in here, of course, we have these beautiful dresses, but we also have another reproduction of Diego Rivera's. This is Sunday afternoon in the Alameda. Uh, and this really gives you a sense of what Vasconcelos was trying to do with the mural movement. This is actually only a, about a quarter of the mural. It's enormous. It has its own museum in Mexico City. Um, but it has lots of elements that represent the history of Mexico. So this is kind of like a melting pot of Mex all of Mexico's history in one painting. You have Benito Juarez up in the left corner. You have the ladies of the town here uh, wearing, again, their, you know, their beautiful European fashions. You have indigenous people selling uh, newspapers and candies. You have, of course, Diego Rivera depicted as a child. Not sure why he depicted himself as a child, but he did that quite often. You've got Frida Kahlo here holding the yin and yang symbol. You've got the wonderful um, skeleton representing the Dias de Muertos, the Day of the Dead. And you also have Porfirio Diaz over here, the dictator who controlled Mexico for more than 40 years. And wider in this image you have uh, elements representing Emilio Zapata, the great agrarian leader, and elements of the incredible Mexican Revolution. So it's really all about this history laid out in a very didactic way that people would be able to interpret. Just as we know was done in sort of medieval church painting, it was a way of storytelling through paint. The same was done in the Mexican mural movement as well. And there is a whole YouTube video on this mural online um, that you can have a look at that really unpacks all of the different parts of this story if you're interested in, in kind of taking that further with your students. It's a really important part of that storytelling. And mural movements have been kind of profound around the world. The last two rooms in the exhibition, which we won't go through because uh, they're smaller for us to walk in. Um, the second to last room is a really moment for people to reflect. It does talk about Frida Kahlo's um, 
sort of broken body, as she called it, and about the, the sort of pain and everyday suffering. Of course, she, like I said, she had more than 30 operations in her life. It shows her in her hospital beds. Um, but, of course, the creative impetus is such that even when she's lying in bed and her body is, is stilled in a... Um, a like a corset, a plaster corset, she had to paint it. She had to continue to paint. That creative outlet was such an important part of herself. And then the final room is a moment for people to, to really kind of celebrate the legacy of Frida Kahlo. We have that incredible self-portrait, um, Diego, my mind, or self-portrait as Tijuana with the beautiful um, Tijuana headdress that we see here. And it really is about what it is about Frida Kahlo and her notion of identity and kind of creation of self that is such an important legacy to us today. And I really wanted a celebratory moment at the end of the exhibition. Um, of course, all of the elements and, and the beautiful colours throughout are really trying to evoke a sense of Mexico uh, and a sense of just putting you in that little moment in time in Mexico City. Because not a lot of us get to travel. Uh, to Mexico, although I think more people perhaps will now. They've really loved the show. Um, and it is an incredible place and an opportunity to learn more about uh, artistic work that we wouldn't necessarily have the chance to learn about. So I've really only given you kind of a, a little little bit of information about each space, but I would encourage you to have a wander through the exhibition. There's a whole range of beautiful photographs that help not just kind of elucidate the story of Frida Kahlo, but also the people around her and, and really important photographers as well who are artists in their own right. So there's lots more that you can glean and lots of different stories that you can get from this exhibition.